The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome everybody here in the room and welcome everybody tuning in to our live stream. Uh, So grateful that you're here with us this morning. And if you are a visitor here, welcome from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. This is a church being transformed into the image of Christ so anyone can find the way to God. And we're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. And I wanted to especially say thanks to all the people who lifted a finger, did anything to make last Easter weekend happen. Uh, It was just such a wonderful weekend. Everybody who helped out for Good Friday, the Easter breakfast, Easter Sunday service, thank you so much, everybody who came, and for those of you who put in time and energy and effort, it was a really special celebration of the resurrection of our Lord. And I want to invite you to be here next Sunday as we begin a brand new sermon series. Last fall, we did a couple series based in the gospel. We had a series on evangelism called The Good News, and we had a series called The Gospel According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Kind of in that vein, we're starting a five-week series next week called The Gospel According to Moses, Good News, and the Torah. So we're going to take five weeks, one book a week, and spend time asking, where is God's good news? What is the gospel in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Where is Jesus in the five books of Moses? So I'm really excited for this series. I hope you'll be here next Sunday, April 23rd, as we begin with Genesis, the gospel according to Moses. That means this morning... We're finishing up our series, One in Christ, A Call to Unity. So let's stand one final time and recite Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 together. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Be seated. Let's pray. Lord God and Father of all, we give you thanks this morning once again for your word. God, we thank you for this time of worship, this time to experience your presence, to experience the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, I pray that peace over this room, that peace over all of our hearts, that we might be united and truly one in Christ. We give you thanks for your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to help us read it. And God, I ask you for the gift of preaching. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Came across a joke not too long ago called the Three Huts. There's a ship sailing by a desert island 
and they spot a castaway who's been on the island for several years, and so the captain of the ship goes aboard the island, and he talks to the castaway, and he notices that there's three huts on the island, and so the captain asks the man, hey, what's this first hut for? He says, well, that's, that's my house. He says, okay, what's the second hut for? He says, well, that's my church. He says, well, what's, what's the third hut for? He says, oh, that, that's the church I used to go to. We've been talking about the church for about seven weeks now. We've been talking about unity in the spirit in the bond of peace. And we've been focused primarily on unity in the church. We've been using Paul's words from Ephesians chapter four, right? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And now we get this morning to one God. And while unity and peace in Ephesians 4 begins in Israel, begins in the church, we start to see that there's a much bigger picture here. We start to see when we get to one God that this one God who is the foundation of the church's unity and peace is the God and Father of all, who is above all and through all. And in all, we've said those words for seven weeks in a row now. Let that really sink in. God and Father of all, above, through, in, all. And we start to see this morning that though peace begins in the people of God, God has much greater and grander plans for oneness with him. God is calling the entire cosmos to unity and peace in Christ. So I want to look into that this morning in Ephesians 4 because it matters a great deal that we believe in this one God and Father of all. It matters a great deal what we believe about this one God, and it matters a great deal what we do about it. So let's go back to verses 1 through 3 one more time. In Ephesians 4, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity and peace are of the Spirit. I loved last week the connection that Ben drew beautifully between the water and spirit of Jesus' baptism and the water and spirit of Genesis chapter 1. So let's look at the first three verses of Genesis 1, the first three verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep, but the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So most scholars date the writing of Genesis 1 to the time of the Babylonian exile, when Israel was in captivity, in exile in Babylon. And at this time, there was another creation story on offer in the Babylonian world. It's a creation story called the Enuma Elish. And it's written in another Semitic language, like Hebrew, but it's Akkadian. 
And there's an interesting parallel between the Enuma Elish and Genesis 1 in these two creation accounts. For instance, that the watery deep that Ben talked about, the kind of chaos there in Genesis 1, it has a Semitic root in Akkadian as well, and it's the word Tiamat. Tiamat is one of the goddesses, essentially, of the Enuma Elish. She's kind of a water goddess, right? But the similarities start to break down between the Enuma Elish and Genesis 1. The more you read them, the more different you see that they are, right? For instance, in the Enuma Elish, the creator god is called Marduk, and he basically creates through violence, through discord, right? He, he splits Tiamat, this water goddess essentially, down the middle, spreads and creates the heavens and the earth, Right? And then he, he slays Tiamat's son, Kingu, and from the blood of Kingu, he creates this little group of slaves, essentially, this race of slaves to serve the gods perpetually, mindlessly, and gratify them. This little race of slaves, humanity. That's how humanity is created in the Enuma Elish, from the blood of this slain god. Talk about violence. Talk about chaos. Whereas the chaos in Genesis 1 is a little bit different, right? There is this watery deep, but the chaos in Genesis 1 is a kind of tranquil emptiness, right? There is this nothing that God comes to fill with something, right? And you notice that while creation in the Enuma Elish involves all this violence and all these other warring deities God is alone in Genesis. God is one, one God. Marduk, the creator God of the Enuma Elish, actually has parents. He has an origin story himself. God has no origin story because God is not some finite being amongst other beings. God is the infinite ground of all being. And God doesn't create through violence and blood. God creates how? with speech. The God who has no beginning because he is eternal, no origin, because he is the origin of all things, creates humankind not from blood, but puts his imprint on them, his image, his dignity and vocation. Two vastly different stories of humanity. The Enuma Elish and Genesis chapter one. And Abigail Faval writes that the oneness and sovereignty of God is strikingly opposed to the throngs of warring gods in the Enuma Elish. The God who creates in Genesis one is the eternal God of infinite peace. That's what we see this morning in Genesis one, that our peace, our bond of peace and unity in the spirit is bound through the peace of God. Our one God is the father of peace, right? We are called to peace at the very center of our existence because our existence is founded on this God of eternal peace, not founded on the violent warring of Marduk and Tiamat and Kingu. It's founded on the eternal God of infinite peace, one God and father of all who's above all and through all and in all. And that means that the chaos and the violence that we experience in this life, it's not gonna last. 
It's not ultimately what is most real about the world, right? That chaos and violence is, is the absence of order. It's the absence of peace. Just like evil is the absence of good, right? To, to ditch all the metaphysical language and use Jeffrey Russell's image, it's like a Swiss cheese. A Swiss cheese has holes, and those holes actually exist. They're there, but they're only there as a lack, right? They're only there as an absence of what is good. Violence is the absence of peace. Evil is the absence of good. But God's full intentions for us, for all time, is infinite, perfect peace, So all of the discord that we experience ultimately fades in our one God who is the father of all peace. And what does Paul say about this father of peace? In verse six of chapter four, one God and father of all who is above all, through all, in all. So our one God of peace is the father of all. God intends this peace Not just for those of us who are currently in this room, right? Not just for people on this one little part of the world. God starts with Israel, but his intention is for all. His peace is on offer to all, which is great because that's precisely what we all want. Isn't it? We all deeply desire peace. We want harmony. We don't like discord and discomfort and strife, right? We all seek peace. We're deeply troubled when we don't find peace, right? We're deeply troubled by the violence that we see around the world in Ukraine and now in Sudan, right? The violence that we see erupting, the the discord and discomfort that we see in our, our cities and our countries and all over the world. And even with our young people, In fact, the CDC put out a a study of 10 years from 2011 to 2021 showing these different behaviors, characteristics of of young people, high schoolers in America. And I was struck by the numbers in 2011 of high school students feeling persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, 28%. Moved to 2021, 42%. Persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. A lack of peace. Right? So if that's you this morning, if you're feeling a lack of peace, I want you to know you're not alone. Right? You are not alone. We've all experienced this discord and strife. We experience that lack of peace. And there's people in this church who want to speak peace into your life. There's people in room 113 right now who want to pray peace into your life if you want to go receive that. Because God's peace is intended for all of us. And we all want peace. We all want peace. Even people who disrupt peace, actually do want peace, right? Even, even warmongers, like St. Augustine talks about this in his book, The City of God, right? He talks about, he says, even they who intentionally interrupt the peace in which they are living have no hatred of peace, but only wish it changed into a peace that suits them better. 
They do not therefore wish to have no peace, but only one more to their mind. Right, the peace of the warmonger, he still wants peace. He wants the, the glory and peace of victory, but he wants a peace that's more like what he wants. He wants a peace more akin to his mind. That's not what the peace of God is like. The peace of God concerns ourselves, but God's peace is not self-centered, it's other-centered, right? The center of our peace is outside of us in God, right? Or is God within us, right? Our peace is centered outside of ourselves in the Lord God, in our community, and God wants us to be at peace with him, with the world, with others, and of course, with ourselves. But God's peace for us is centered outside of us. God wants us to be at peace the way that God is at peace. Right? The one God we worship is one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So peace there is this mutuality to peace. This self-giving love that peace in God has. Right? That peace spills over. It's not closed in on itself. Right? Our peace isn't curved in. It's, it's part of a bond of peace in this community. That's how we demonstrate the peace of God by making peace outside ourselves, by speaking and acting peace to others. Right? Isn't that precisely how Jesus identifies those who are really children of the Father? Remember in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Michael Allen says, when we live as peacemakers, we're we're a chip off the old block. We're living in ways that reflect and resemble our Father. We're showing that this is what it's like to actually be a child of God. So the peace of the church matters for more than just the church. Right? The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace matters for the world. Remember our text from the very first sermon in this series, John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying for oneness in his body. And he says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The peace and unity of the church matters for the world. This past Monday, April 10th, was the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. This agreement was signed in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and it's thought to have mostly brought an end to what was known in Northern Ireland for decades as the Troubles. The Troubles was this conflict in Northern Ireland that happened primarily between Protestant Unionists and between Catholic Nationalists. And so, in one sense, there was years of animosity between these Protestants and Catholics, but this was also a kind of political conflict because the Protestants, 
They wanted to remain one with the United Kingdom, but the Catholics wanted to leave the UK and become a united Ireland. Right? And so the violence got so bad in this period of the Troubles, which took over 3,000 lives, the violence got so bad that they had to build these walls known as peace walls or peace lines through neighborhoods in Belfast. Communities right next to each other with the need for peace walls. Protestants and Catholics on either side. And of course, again, this is a conflict that has to do with culture and politics and all kinds of complicating factors, but it can't help but be ignored that these are Protestants and Catholics. These are people who profess belief in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace of Jesus Christ. And if Christians could live in the truth and reality of that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we might actually begin to make things like a peace wall unnecessary. We might actually begin to live in ways that could make a peace line obsolete. Our ability to live in peace as a church and with other people outside of us matters a great deal for the world as we show them what the Father is like when we make peace. That's our call. That's what we've been chosen to do. Right? And Ephesians uses this language of adoption. It uses this language of inheritance, right? In Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, in Christ we have also obtained an inheritance from our Father. For he is our peace. Jesus in his flesh, he has made both into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. The world needs the church to follow in the footsteps of our Father. The world needs the church to live as responsible stewards of our inheritance of peace. The world needs the church to believe in the foundational, fundamental peace of the created world because of our eternal creator who is peace. But that's not the only belief on offer. That's not the only story on offer. There are other options on the table. There are other accounts of creation. In college, I played a character in a play called Two Rooms, and the character was named Michael Wells. And Michael Wells was a university professor in Beirut who had been captured, taken hostage, bound, confined to a single room, beaten, handcuffed, blindfolded. And the two rooms of the title of the play is the room that Michael is taken captive in, and then also a room in his house back in America where his wife Lainey has stripped it completely of furniture and is spending time in a kind of symbolic solidarity with her husband in captivity. Two rooms. 
And throughout most of the play, most of Michael's lines are written as these big monologues, almost as if they're a letter written to his wife, Lainey. Of course, he can't write a letter. He's bound in in a room. But he speaks to his wife, Lainey, and I've never forgotten the beginning of one of the monologues that Michael says to Lainey. He says, war isn't a tear in the fabric. War is the fabric. He says, if earth is our mother, then our father is war. The chief priority we have on earth is to vie with each other for a place to stand. And he tells Laney, he says, now that he's been subsumed in all this violence, he feels like he's finally a part of the real world. Playing that character, I could find some sympathy for his view of the world. Right? A man who's been confined and beaten and brutalized and torn away from all the goodness of the world, how he could really believe that war is the fabric, that our father is war. I could see how he could feel that. I could see how that story makes sense, and it is a story that we can choose. It is a story that we can choose to live according to, that the turmoil and conflict is actually the foundation of reality, that it's just the survival of the fittest, that it's just the will to power, that our father is war. That's a story we can choose to live according to. But it's not the story that grounds Ephesians 4. It's not the story told in the Gospels. There is another story told in the Gospels on offer, the story of another man who is confined and arrested and beaten and brutalized and torn away from all the goodness of the world. And when that man, Jesus Christ, is crucified on the cross and raised from the dead on the cross, he doesn't declare war to be the fabric. He declares forgiveness for his enemies. And when he's raised from the dead three days later on Easter Sunday and he appears to his followers, his first word to them is peace. Peace be with you. And those followers founded this community. This community that stretches by the unity of the Spirit back to Easter Sunday. And now... Jesus Christ, who gives us a different story to live according to, who gives us a different story than war being the fabric, who gives us a different story than the Enuma Elish, Jesus Christ is calling us to be one, calling us to be a chip off the old block, calling us to be like the one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So which story will we believe? Which story will we live into? Will we live the story of foundational, fundamental violence, or will we live the story based on the creator God of infinite, perfect peace who sees your discord, who sees the strife, who sees deep into your hearts and speaks peace to you now, speaks peace through the power of the Holy Spirit that unites us in Jesus Christ, in that bond of peace. Let us stand and proclaim our willingness to worship the God of peace and follow him.